Blood, Sweat, and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Blood, Sweat, and Fear. It's the story of Inspector John Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. While Vance worked for the Vancouver Police Department, he was often asked to work on cases all over British Columbia and up into the Yukon. The crimes ranged from B&Es to arson to car accidents and murder. In 1936, one of those murder cases was in Victoria on Vancouver Island. Victoria is a laid-back capital of British Columbia. The city is known for its stunning ocean views and fabulous gardens, but it's also renowned for its ghosts. Victoria has the distinction of being the most haunted city in the province. On Saturday, September 26, 1936, readers of The Daily Colonist learned that Victor Gravelin, a former reporter at the newspaper, and his estranged wife, Doris, had been missing for four days. Police, the article said, would be conducting a search in the Oak Bay area, where the couple was last seen. Victor and Doris married in 1929 and separated less than six years later. They had one child, a boy named Robin. On the night she disappeared, Doris had been at her job as a home care nurse to a woman who lived on Beach Drive. She told her employer that she was going out for a walk, but wouldn't be long. She was actually going to meet Victor, who was back living with his parents. He was desperately trying to get Doris to take him back, and she'd agreed to talk to him about a reconciliation. She never returned from the meeting. Both Doris's and Victor's parents reported them missing the next day. Victor's mother told police that a son had been released from hospital about two weeks before and was convalescing at the time of his disappearance. Victor was well known in Victoria as a man who couldn't handle his booze and was a nasty drunk. He'd worked on the sports desk at the Daily Colonist for 10 years and left, or more likely was pushed out, at the end of 1934. From there, things got steadily worse for his family. Doris took Robin and moved back in with her mother and stepfather on Dallas Road. Her mother, Charlotte, ran a nursing home called Sunhill Sanatorium out of a house in Royal Oak, and Doris often worked and stayed there. Five days after their disappearance, the colonist ran headshots of the couple in the Sunday paper. 36-year-old Victor was described as 5'11", with a medium build, thin features, and of nervous temperament, which sounds like a nice way of saying alcoholic. Doris was a pretty 30-year-old with auburn hair and she was particularly striking because of her eyes. One was blue and the other was brown. When she was last seen, she was wearing a green dress, blue coat with silver buttons and a grey hat. Before they separated, Victor and Doris often spent their Sundays walking across the golf course usually headed to the Oak Bay Beach Hotel. After the story ran in The Daily Colonist, 
Police received a tip that the couple had been seen near the golf course on the same night as their disappearance. A woman who lived nearby told police that she'd heard a scream sometime after nine that same night coming from the direction of the golf course. Police brought along a bloodhound and a tracker and searched the bush and shoreline around the golf course. Police Chief John Syme said that they'd found indications of a violent struggle in a clump of broom just off Beach Drive. The soil was disturbed, the grass was flattened, there were deep marks in the ground, and there was a lot of blood. At 3.40 that afternoon, John Johnson, a caddy at the Victoria Golf Club, was searching along the waterfront at the edge of the course for a lost golf ball. He caught a glimpse of what looked like a pink sweater tucked between some logs. As he went to pick up the sweater, he realised he was looking at the body of a woman. He told some boys who were nearby to run to the clubhouse and call police. Chief Syme and a constable met Johnson at a rocky, isolated part of the beach that was covered in driftwood, long grass, shrubs and wild roses. They found Doris lying in a shallow sand trap at the base of a nine-foot-high embankment. She was lying on her back and well hidden by the long grass. Syme counted five pieces of driftwood laid across the body. A smaller piece of wood had been laid across her head and seaweed placed on top. Doris's dress was matted with blood and had been pulled up underneath her body as though she'd been dragged some distance by her legs. She wasn't wearing any shoes and her stockings had holes in the knees. Her body was badly bruised. She'd been beaten around the head and there were bloodstains around her neck and chest. A large red mark ran across her neck where she'd been strangled. It was still the depression and the five-man Oak Bay Police Department was already overloaded with petty crimes. Chief Syme felt out of his depth dealing with the murder investigation. He contacted the Vancouver Police Department and requested the assistance of their criminologist, Inspector John Vance. Vance flew to Victoria the next day and went straight to the crime scene. He collected hairs from the vegetation and samples of the blood-drenched soil. Vance found a piece of torn fabric that had ripped off a jagged branch of a cottonwood tree. He carefully marked the evidence at the points where it was found. The torn fabric was later matched to Doris's dress. Back at the lab, Vance confirmed that the blood type matched Doris's. The auburn strands of hair found at the site were also from her head. When Vance examined Doris's body at the morgue, he found soil and vegetation under her fingernails where she'd dug them into the ground. One piece of driftwood that had covered her body was stained with blood and contained scraps of fabric from her clothes as well as remnants of her hair and flesh. Vance found fragments of rope on her neck. Doris's coat, hat and shoes were missing, but a pair of men's shoes were found near her body. Police issued a warrant for the missing Victor Gravelin, naming him as a suspect in his wife's death. Strangely, though, police told reporters that based on Doris's missing coat, hat and shoes, they thought that Victor had dressed up as a woman 
and was either hiding on Vancouver Island or had fled to the mainland. Except for the article about the couple's disappearance and a second story when Doris's body was found, there was nothing reported in the local paper about the police investigation. Even though Victor hadn't worked at the Daily Colonist for over a year, it's quite possible that the newspaper was protecting one of their own from public scrutiny. Several police forces, the provincial police, and even a Boy Scout troop were involved in the search for Victor, but it would be another month until he was found. A local man was rowing along the waterfront when he found a body tangled in a bed of kelp. It was in deep water, just south of Gonzales Point, which is west of Victoria. He rowed to shore and notified police. Chief Symes and a constable borrowed his boat and rowed out to the body. The constable tied a rope around the belt of Victor's overcoat and towed the body to shore. When they searched his clothing, they found Doris's missing shoes stuffed in the left pocket of his overcoat, along with her hat and her belt. There was also a half-empty packet of British Consul cigarettes, a white handkerchief and a piece of hemp rope that had been used to strangle her. Vance returned to Victoria to examine the corpse. Even though it had been submerged in water for a very long time, he was able to find strands of Doris's auburn hair and remnants of her clothing on Victor's overcoat. The hair that Vance found under Doris's fingernails came from Victor's head. Vance removed auburn hair from the rope found in Victor's pocket. The back and left shoulder of Victor's coat was drenched in blood, the same blood type as Doris's. From the trace evidence found at the scene and on the clothes, Vance figured that after he had killed her, Victor picked up Doris, then rested before dragging her the rest of the way to the beach. He was heavily dressed for early fall. As well as his coat, he wore a jacket and vest, two sweaters, a shirt, long underwear and a pair of heavy dark shoes. Vance noted that because the blood on his coat had dried, Victor must have waited at least 24 hours before he entered the water and drowned. Vance found small pieces of fabric torn from Victor's coat on a sharp rock ledge. There was also scraps of fabric from his trousers, which had torn when he'd sat down on the slippery rocks. There was a sheer drop into the water, and it looked very much like Victor had killed Doris, then walked to the steep rock ledge and sat until he could gather up his courage to jump. At the inquest, the jury's verdict was that Victor Gravelin committed suicide by drowning and was of unsound mind. There was also no question in anyone's mind that he had first murdered his wife. The first recorded sighting of Doris happened shortly after her death. People talked about seeing a woman either walking along the golf course, crossing Beach Drive near the Oak Bay Beach Hotel, or standing near the water where Victor Gravelin had drowned himself. They may not have known her by name, but if you talked about the ghost of the golf course, any local would know who you meant. And because most of the sightings occurred at the end of March or in April, she became known as the April Ghost. 
A lot of these sightings have been recorded over the years, and these are some of the more interesting ones. In April 1964, a man was fishing from a rock shelf near where Victor had drowned. He turned and saw a woman in a brown suit standing a few metres away, looking out across the water. He remembered thinking that her clothes looked out of date and she seemed sad. All of a sudden, she dashed towards the water, melted away and vanished. Another sighting in April 1964 was by a high school kid named Tony Gregson. He and his girlfriend were walking on the golf course near the seventh tee when the temperature suddenly dropped and they came face to face, or rather face to ghost, with Doris. Tony described her as a luminous grey with an aura around her. He said there was no way you could mistake her for a living person. As she moved along the beach, the kids noticed that her feet seemed to pass over the pebbles without coming into contact with them. According to Victoria Ghost Law, couples that were engaged and saw the ghost broke up shortly after the sighting. The conclusion drawn was that Doris was not a fan of marriage. In March 1972, 35 years after Doris's murder, a couple of University of Victoria students were walking on the golf course. Patrick Dunnay, now a retired university professor, historian and writer, said it just suddenly appeared and he described it as white, soft, luminous and regular. I didn't know anything about Doris Glavin and the murder and the investigation or any of that at the time. My girlfriend Fiona and I, uh, Fiona lived not too far from the golf course, and on March 12th, 1972, 47 years ago, I just counted, we went out for a walk about 9.30 in the evening. We were both students at the University of Victoria. Fiona suggests we walk over towards the beach, and looking back, I see it was probably the fifth hole of Victoria Golf Course. And we were walking northeast along the golf links, and Fiona was startled, and she was um, apprehensive, and pointed up on the hill. Fiona described it initially as a, almost like a Christmas tree shape, or later a classic image of a woman in a long gown, and it was glowing white and luminous on, on the top of this hill. And we both felt a compunction just to turn around and walk away from it, rather than go and explore what it was. And I kept looking over my shoulder, and I could see it still there. And when we got back to her home, I said, you know, I think we probably saw Greenskeeper's tool shed. So we went back the next day, and it, there was nothing there. And soon after, I was talking to a local journalist, Ed Gould. And Ed, who wrote local history books, he also belonged to the Victoria Psychic Society. And he said, oh, you've seen the, I think he called it the Easter Ghost. So he interviewed me, and Fiona, who was, I don't know how he persuaded her because she was quite skeptical, but uh, he interviewed her, and then the story appeared in a local newspaper to um, our embarrassment. So we didn't know about the ghost at the time, and alas, we, we, nor did we realize courting couples, you know, to use an old-fashioned expression, we were, you know, very much a romantic couple, that their, their relationship is doomed. We might well have married had we not seen the, the, the ghost. But, you know, um, having said that, Eve, uh, you know, I, the, the image is still f 
fresh in my mind. I wouldn't say it was a life, well, maybe it was a life-changing image because we didn't get married. But, you know, I could still replay that evening, the, the dark green of the grass and the, the, the inky dark of the sky, and this luminous white thing was so incongruous. In 1982, three teenagers were driving along Beach Avenue around one in the morning when they saw a woman in a long white dress glide across the road in front of them. They thought they were going to hit her, and then she just disappeared. Sightings of Doris's ghost were always on a weekend, and almost always in two specific areas. She was most often spotted around five in the afternoon, walking across the golf course, wearing an old-fashioned brown suit. It's only after she went by that the person realised that something wasn't right. It's later at night, usually around 10, when she's been spotted close to the water. She's wearing a long white dress. Some say it's a wedding dress, and she seems standing with her arms outstretched. People who saw her said she rushed towards them and suddenly shrank into a small pool of light and then disappeared. Afterwards, they said they felt a change in the atmosphere, usually a drop in temperature and they would become anxious and feel a sense of dread. I find Doris's choice of a wedding dress a little odd, given that she was murdered by her husband. It's also interesting, but perhaps not surprising, that she's never seen in the clothes that she was wearing the night she died. After the deaths of his mother and father, young Robin Gravelin was adopted by his maternal grandparents. He was renamed Robin Thompson and sent to boarding school on Vancouver Island. After the end of World War II, Robin was sent to England to finish his education at the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst. Much of his career was spent in the Far East. In 1994, Lon Wood was writing a Halloween story about the April ghost for the Times Colonist, a variation of the paper that Victor Gravelin had worked at 60 years before. Lon tracked down Robin in Staffordshire, England, where he was in charge of public transport in the Midlands. When I was researching this story, I tracked Lon down at his home on Vancouver Island. Lon told me that when he asked Robin about his mother's ghost, he was shocked that Robin had no idea how his parents had died and didn't know anything about his family's history. This is not old, he told Lon. This is all news to me. Lon sent him newspaper clippings of the murder-suicide and of the many ghost sightings. When Lon called him again a few weeks later, Robin told him, if it's history, then it's there and it's not going to go away. Local legend has it that Doris's spirit was restless and wouldn't leave until her son had been told how her parents died. Seven months after Lon's phone call that told him of his unfortunate family history, Robin, then 65, died of heart failure during a gallbladder operation in London. Lon, the reporter, had a heart attack later that year. He left the Times colonist and was told that he had a one in five chance of surviving without a transplant. Lon continues to survive without a transplant, and to his knowledge, 
There have been no further sightings of the April ghost.